0: Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kair, and We're coming to you this afternoon from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. Thank you for joining us. Uh, in this program, the focus is on real-world impact of academic research. The University of Iowa is ranked among the top thirty-five public universities in the United States, renowned not only for its academic excellence but also for its research profile. But what does it mean to be a research university? and what role does research play in the student experience? How does faculty research affect the reputation and overall impact of an academic institution? Most importantly, how does the research done on college campuses affect the aspirations and achievements of a society as a whole? More and more frequently, higher education institutions are being asked to quantify their value to the students they enroll, the parents who assume part of the financial burden, and to society's larger goals. Here to discuss the role of research in a public university is University of Iowa Vice President Dan Reed. He's Vice President for Research and Economic Development. Nice to have you here. Thank you for joining us, Dan. Um, Yesterday in the Chronicle of Higher Education, there was an article called Is University Research Missing What Matters Most? Um, I'd like to ask that question to you, but um, to ask you to begin with... uh, um, sort of a description of what you see as this university's role within the Iowa community, within higher ed, uh, those comparative institutions that we often reflect our own uh, image against, and then also the, the world of research and new knowledge. What, what is the role of research here that we have at the University of Iowa?
1: Well, I think maybe we should start with what's the role of a university mm. because I think research and education are deeply entwined. I really think that a a public research university like the University of Iowa has three roles. We transmit knowledge to new generations. That's our educational mission. We create new knowledge. And we're also engaged with society in helping propagate the value of that knowledge for society's benefit. And so those three parts are deeply intertwined. In every generation, the compact between society in higher education gets renegotiated. If you think about the history of higher education in this country from the origins of the country, uh, today it has changed many, many times. Certainly the modern research university as we know it is a post-World War II creation. The federal investment in basic research and the expectation that we will transfer that Into society and the economic impact; those are relatively recent things. Uh, And so, as we think about this balance, of shifting expectations and globalization, it's appropriate to periodically have that conversation about what should a research university do and what's its obligation to society. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So you came into this position three years ago now.
1: Just about three years ago. About three
0: years ago, um, from. career at other institutions, a big career uh, at Microsoft, and, and so on. So you've sort of been around a little bit, both inside and outside of academia. <laughs> um, what, what How do you define it for your role with this university? What what do you see yourself um, monitoring or encouraging or implementing or dreaming up? What's, what's the role you're trying to fill?
1: Well, I think one of the things that's really important to realize about basic research and scholarship. And bear in mind, that includes not only the sciences, engineering, and medicine, but the arts, humanities, Uh law, all the cultural things that are part of a great university. There are really two things we try to do. We try to advance the state of human knowledge, and we look at those practical impacts and how we can affect society with them. One of the things that's important to realize, I think, when people talk about research, and certainly as they talk about how it engages society, There's often a great misconception that society in in the private sector does a lot of research. So when you hear companies talk about Mm R&D, the truth is they do really little R and they do really big D. Mm -hmm. Almost Mm -hmm. all basic research that is curiosity-driven where you don't know where it will lead is done in universities and it's mostly funded by the federal government. That virtuous cycle means that the discoveries that take place in the university, we don't necessarily know when we start the process, where they will lead, or even when or if they will ever have applications. And there's a long history if you look back and you say, when did an idea first enter someone's mind? Mm -hmm. And when did it have tangible economic value, for example? That answer can be 5, 10, 15, 20, sometimes 50 years. And so we create this reservoir of knowledge Mm -hmm. that society can draw on to create those tangible artifacts that have enriched our world.
0: So um, how how does it happen that someone who's working, say you're working in a lab, imagine we're working on something that's a technological idea, um, uh, and little discoveries are being made that seem unique and interesting as you go along, but so far, whatever the the project was about at the beginning, that hasn't really materialized, but there has been other useful information that others, at some other point, perhaps in another part of the world, uh, can take and make use of. Uh, How does a faculty member who's working on something that to, maybe to colleagues, to one's spouse, to one's kids, may seem like a fruitless uh, endeavor... They just, I can't get it, I can't get it. But then someone else, seeing this research paper, it triggers a thought in their minds, and then I I take it that's what this basic research is all about. People publish their findings, and then that knowledge becomes transferred to other people for uses, however they might want to use it. How do you and your deans and faculty leaders and so on figure out what path of uh, research someone is undertaking is worthwhile and what may not be worthwhile.
1: Well, I'm a big believer that knowledge is intrinsically valuable, Mm -hmm. so let me just stipulate that. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question concretely, every time there's a new discovery, it's a piece of a great puzzle. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the pieces come from multiple sources, and you look at the whole, and suddenly you have a bigger aha. Mm -hmm. But the concrete answer to your question in terms of how do we look at things, We ask faculty to come to us in my office and disclose their ideas. And actually before they publish them, because given the way that the US Patent Office works, you actually have to file a provisional patent before you go tell people about the idea. Because if you go tell them about it before you've done that, it's in the public domain. It belongs Mm. to the world. Mm -hmm. So that early process is tell us about your idea. We will then do diligence and ask Based on what we know about where industry is going in different sectors, does it look like this idea has possible value? Mm-hmm. If so, then we will go file a provisional patent in the U.S. and often internationally mm-hmm. to protect the idea. Once we do that, I can again tell you that the mean time before that idea is picked up by someone that mm-hmm. it's licensed is often a decade. And we have lots of history that says that's the lead time. Mm-hmm. But once that patent is filed, then there are two ways that the idea can, in some sense, escape the university. One is we license it to an existing company. Mm -hmm. So for example, if someone makes a pharmaceutical discovery, we might license it to a pharmaceutical company. They would have to do years of drug testing and licensing before it could actually become a drug product. The other is we might, in turn, license it to the faculty member themselves to say, you want to start a company yourself? Then we will help nurture you and educate you about how the process to build a company yourself around this idea. Mm-hmm. And so there are those two paths, mm-hmm. either to an existing company or uh, to a new startup. And it depends on the individual idea uh, and the interest of the researcher as to which of those paths is the most appropriate.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So could you give us an idea of what what number of these might, in the last uh, 10, 12 years, how many new startups have arisen here? Um, because of research that came through the University of Iowa. Is there any way to, to Oh, absolutely.
1: We track, we track all of those numbers. We track the number of patents that we filed. We track the, num- the revenue that comes from those patents. Mm-hmm. We track the number of startups. So I was just in, in Des Moines today talking about economic development. And if you look at the number of companies that have been created, even in the last three or four years, you know we create about five or six companies a year. Uh, and those grow at various scales. Some are sold, some are required, some continue to grow. We patent about 150 ideas a year. Uh, And so there is a long pipeline uh, of those ideas uh, that we continue to see a market for. But as I said, sometimes you don't know. Mm -hmm. And if you look at something that's as ubiquitous, I'll use a concrete example. All of us have smartphones. Mm -hmm. Some of those technologies in those smartphones are basic research ideas that are 50 years old. And so you you think about Mm -hmm. and they were basic fundamental nuclear physics ideas. Mm -hmm. The GPS that lets you track things in your smartphone, that started out as a basic physics research question that, at the time, if you'd ask anyone, does this have any practical value, they would have said, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. This is fundamentally about understanding how the universe works. And so when those pieces come together in a puzzle and someone can say, oh, those 20 things that we learned, now we can do this, Mm -hmm. that's the other part of the aha. Mm -hmm. It's true in every discipline, whether it be engineering or medicine, where basic biology understanding gives insights into how to create better drug treatments or treat Mm -hmm. cancer. Those happen over a period of years. And so that's why I said before I fundamentally believe That knowledge itself is valuable because it is the reservoir of insight that we draw on to create new things. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about the sciences, but it's important to realize that that's true in the creative arts as well. The same things that motivate great writers are the same motivations that drive great scientists. I mean, because if you think about what we do, in the end, we want to push back the darkness and illuminate. The boundaries of human knowledge and understand what it means for the human condition so whether you're an artist or a biomedical researcher I mean the human impulse is the same mm-hmm. and whether you take those ideas and continue to explore the basic research or whether you turn them into pragmatic instantiations mm-hmm. that have economic impact it's just another aspect of the creative process
0: yeah you know um, was some data in this article I mentioned earlier in the Chronicle. It gives a figure of $64 billion in total academic research and development spending in 2014 for the biological sciences, medical sciences, and engineering. That was $64 billion, but only $2.2 billion for various social sciences and $1.1 billion for psychology. So I, I think most of us understand that a lot of the medical or engineering research requires a huge amount of infrastructure you need. Lab um, assistance you need you need the uh, labs cost a lot of money, right. so that that accounts for some of this um, and testing over many years and so on but uh, that 's a huge gap between the kind of funding that 's available out there for uh, research in the humanities and what is there for scientific or engineering purposes um, is Is this a challenge for you when you're uh, faculty from College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, for example, are working on a great project, and you can see the value of it, and you think, wow, I'd love to support you for that. And they may have gotten some grants somewhere, but it's not enough to do whatever they need to do. Um, What what advice do you give them?
1: Persevere. I mean, I'll give you a few other statistics to Mm. put this in in perspective. And one of the things we do on campus is we provide seed funding Mm. to bootstrap new projects, and we do a lot of investment in the arts and humanities because the federal government invest so little. Mm. But here's why this matters so much. Since World War II, about half of all economic growth in the U.S. can be traced to things that came out of investments in basic research. Mm. Half. Mm. Here's another reason why you should be worried about our future, though. In the last decade, the U.S. has fallen from second to tenth Mm. in the fraction of GDP that it invests and basic research and scholarship among the major industrialized countries of the world. This is a global competition. Mm -hmm. We depend on the the best and brightest on the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, And being able to provide the resources for them to be successful affects our future, our health, and our well-being, and our safety in a very literal sense. It's Mm -hmm. not a metaphor. It really matters.
0: Mm So uh, how do you convince legislators here in our state uh, to help support the university efforts and those legislators in Washington who make judgments about how much the NSF will receive or how much the National Endowment for the Arts or for the Humanities will receive? uh, how, How do you make that push in these political times?
1: So one of the things I think is really important is a great question, and it's one that's become more pointed as we talk about investment in education writ large, not just research, but education as a whole. A couple of answers. I think it's very difficult to tell prospective stories, give us resources, trust us, something wonderful Mm -hmm. will happen. It will, but that's a much more difficult case to make. It's far easier to tell retrospective stories and say, these things that you take for granted now, Let me tell you how they happened. It's because these things happened 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago that we have these advantages now. And if you want more of those, we have Mm -hmm. to keep feeding this pipeline. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a big piece of it. The other is I believe you have to relate stories in ways that people can viscerally understand how it affects their lives. Mm -hmm. So you talk about health and why um, These things will improve your health, perhaps extend your lifetime. You talk about national security and why investments in basic research ensure the security of the country. Mm -hmm. You talk about the economic impact of research and why if you're worried about whether your son or daughter or grandchild will have a productive and successful economic experience that will allow them to build Uh, A life that they can savor and enjoy Mm -hmm. these are the things that we have to do and then you point to the ways That that's true, Mm -hmm. and all of the survey data that I've seen says That as much as we in academia value knowledge for its own sake Most of society values knowledge for what it allows them to do And so being able to tell both sides of that story Mm -hmm. is really important
0: Mm -hmm. Um, The questions from parents and from students who are in universities like ours um which is you know within the big ten that's a pretty big bargain but it's still a lot of investment um in a college experience um there are those out there who say you know um i don't know about all this research i sending my kid to school so that they can you know, learn whatever, they can get out, they can get a job, and really speaking about the university much more as if it were a uh, directed technical college. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but that's not the same thing as a wider-ranging liberal arts mm-hmm. university. And so what is the case that needs to be made that, um, on the one hand, a liberal arts university with a wide curriculum uh, like, like what we have here at the University of Iowa, that that is uh, an important... Um, Uh, kind of education to maintain in the country and then also to help people understand that it isn't really just the two or three classes a semester that a professor will teach but it is all of the research input. It's working with and mentoring students um, to assist with that research or to uh, develop projects on their own. The the wide breadth of what happens within an academic institution like this is really a little hard to conceive, even when you think you know what to look for. So for those people who think that, you know, you should just be teaching and college should cost much less than it does now, what do you say to those folks?
1: I think there are several answers to that. I'll start with one um, that I think you touched on, which is, yes, there were many different reasons people come to a university, Mm -hmm. some to acquire skills, Mm -hmm. some to gain a perspective on life, The common theme across all of those is we are facing what I would say is an important inflection point in our society. Whatever your life experience is or will be, there is a truth that's challenging many of our basic fundamental assumptions about society, and that's the following. In most of human history, the rate of change was sufficiently slow that your experience at an early age would serve you well for an entire lifetime.
2: Right.
1: That is no longer true. It's true in an economic sense that the days that you would go to work for a company and work for 30 years, they're gone. You will have not one job, not two jobs, perhaps five or 10 jobs in your lifetime. So the eternal skill, the, the, the sustaining skill, mm-hmm. is the ability to learn new things mm-hmm. uh, and to acquire new skills. But more importantly, given the rate of change, you think about the uber forces that are affecting our society, globalization, mm-hmm. urbanization. Mm-hmm. You, know, you think about the mass migrations and upsets that are happening in the Middle East and how that's affecting Europe. Mm-hmm. You think about the rise of Asia's and economic power. They, the globalization of those effects is transforming our world. And it's as well to connect it back to research another aspect, which is that pace of change means it's never been more important to have an informed society. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a concrete example. Think about the rise of autonomous vehicles, Mm -hmm. what that's going to mean for um, safety, for the ability of the elderly to remain mobile, what it will mean for long-haul trucking. You can go on and on and on. There are questions about safety and liability. There are new processes and discoveries in gene editing that will allow us to edit the germlines of humans. You can decide how tall do you want to be. Do you want blue eyes? There are deep ethical questions about what we could do and what we should do. Who are the people who should be engaged Mm -hmm. in that debate? Mm -hmm. They're not just the scientists, not just the researcher. They are the liberal arts educated who can talk about ethics, who can talk about history, Mm -hmm. who can talk about society. Put those things in a broad context and say, this is what we can learn from our human experience. And so it's all part of a great mosaic Mm -hmm. And it's really important to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. So when you send your child to a university, to a research university, you, yes, you hope they will emerge with economic opportunities that equal or exceeded yours. That's part of the great American dream. But you also hope that they will be citizens of the world. And what a great research university does is it engages those students with faculty and a cohort that are on that journey together, who can not only say, this is what's happened before, but together, we can ask the questions about what would be, mm-hmm. and we can do that together as researchers and scholars. Mm-hmm. And that's an experience you can only get in a research university. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what do you see happening nationally or also here in Iowa um, about this point of inflection that you just mentioned? I mean, what, what do you feel, um, I'll just mention for myself, if I watch the day's political news, I will hear a lot of conversation, a lot of anger, a lot of people who say, you know, this is just not as good as it needs to be and whatever. Um, there are lots of different answers to that. As a VP for Research and Economic Development here at this university, in this state, I suspect you also don't think you've reached some some point where now we can stop because we know everything we need to know. But how do we keep those people who are frustrated and see universities are sort of protected, uh, ivory tower places that don't deal with the real problems um, they may be facing. What do we need to do to tell that story better so that, that um, people who aren't connected through their work or, or friendships to an academic institution really can appreciate the full value of what these institutions can bring to our well, state?
1: Well, I think that's a really good question, and it goes sort of this question about the societal compact. And I will draw an analogy back to the creation of the land grant institutions that happened during the Civil War. And they were about taking new knowledge in agricultural and mechanics out to empower a generation um, that could embrace new agricultural practices in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. That notion about engaged partnership with society to address important societal issues, Mm -hmm. I think is how you get at that question of, Mm -hmm. yes, there's great ennui about the rate of change and the economic malaise that people feel post-recession recovery and the disparities in wealth. Those are deep societal issues. Mm -hmm. But if you think about how we affect those, Mm -hmm. we go out broadly and engage and we talk about let's talk about structural employment, Mm -hmm. let's talk about societal change let's talk about policy let's talk about how science and technology can engage and address economic issues in the state let's draw on the wealth of insights and experience Mm -hmm. we have in the arts and humanities Mm -hmm. you know I said to someone the other day if you think about concerns about environmental sustainability and climate change Mm -hmm. we know a lot about that from the Dust Bowl era not just from the the science and climatology Mm -hmm. perspective But the people who looked at the social disruption that that caused, who understood the history, the politics of that, how do we come together and engage society in a new way? That is that great renegotiation of the societal compact. Mm -hmm. And I think what it will mean for public research universities is, yes, we have to continue to engage in the open-ended scholarship, the basic research and scholarship that is really the, the wellspring of the future. But we also have to be engaged and active in saying, we are stewards of the taxpayers' dollars, and we have a responsibility to help make the citizens of our state and of our country more healthy, more Mm -hmm. successful, more competitive. Mm -hmm. And that means thinking about how we address things in a way that will connect to them. And that's something we've not done as well, Mm -hmm. I think, in the last 20 years as we might have done in the
0: past. Yeah, uh, my guess is that that's that's probably true of many many universities. I don't think it's true it's just not for, unique to us. for ours. But um, one of the parts of your title is economic development. So we've been talking a lot about research. But I I know that you frequently meet with people in various parts of our state and elsewhere uh, to talk about economic development. And what what uh, what is your approach there when you're speaking to legislators or to business organizations? Are they asking you? Is there someone at the university doing this sort of research? Uh, could we get in touch with them? Or are you opening the door and saying, come in and, and talk with us?
1: We're doing all of those things. So if you think about the Iowa economy in particular,
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's the current economy and there's the future economy. The current economy of Iowa is largely, no surprise to any of us, agriculture and mm-hmm. small manufacturing. Those are the historical strengths of the mm-hmm. state's economy. The future knowledge economy is a different thing though, Uh, and it is based on these kinds of knowledge worker ideas that we've been implicitly talking about where uh, it's not a tangible thing that's produced, it's an idea that Mm -hmm. has economic value, and that is a change. Mm -hmm. So we're working on both of those things. So we have programs where we go work with existing small businesses to deal with issues, for example, of generational change. Perhaps the children don't want to continue in the small business, but it's it's an anchor of a small community. So how do you think about generational succession? Find some other people who would be willing to participate. Mm -hmm. In that sort of intersection of the traditional manufacturing economy and the knowledge economy, the reality is if you're not uh, plugged into the Internet today, many people think you don't exist. Mm -hmm. So if you're a small manufacturer, how do you think about having logistics and supply chain internet access so we work with people on those kind of information technology issues Mm -hmm. we try to provide economic advice to groups we help people try to start companies we help existing companies think about how they find investors and grow so it's a whole Mm -hmm. menu of ways Mm -hmm. that we engage both on the existing economy Uh, and how we touch the new economy. And Mm -hmm. the core strength in terms of the economic impact of the university is in biomedicine. Uh, And one of the things that's true in this state is there is not a big biomedical presence in this state. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of healthcare presence, but there's not a lot of biomedical presence. No big pharmaceutical companies, Mm -hmm. no big medical device companies. So we're trying to grow that industry in this state so that there's a future that is a complement to the existing base because we want the existing one to continue to grow and flourish. We want to build a new one as well that's a new Mm -hmm. knowledge economy to go with it. Mm
0: -hmm. Wow. Well, very exciting, and I appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk with us about this this afternoon. Uh, Do you feel good about where the University of Iowa is right now in terms of its research, uh, the dollars that we get from foundations and from the government and so on? It seems that every year that does seem to go up. Cross your fingers.
1: It does, uh, and to put that in perspective, um, this year we received just under five hundred million dollars uh, in public and private dollars uh, to uh, that fund research on campus. That creates directly thousands of jobs, and we have hard economic data that shows that uh, mm-hmm. it has collateral effects across the state, as we've been talking mm-hmm. about, in new job creation and indirect purchases. But it is a challenge, mm-hmm. uh, and if I leave you with nothing else. It, is, it should be the following. In a globally competitive world, advantage accrues to those who invest and empower their talent. Mm-hmm. And that's what universities are about. Attracting, retaining from a state perspective, but attracting and retaining even from a national perspective and giving those people the skills, the knowledge, and the tools to compete with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. That's the business we're in.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, you've been listening to Dan Reed, uh, the Vice President for Research and Economic Development here at the University of Iowa and um, so happy to have you here My with pleasure. us to start this discussion off. We'll be talking in just a moment with uh, three professors from the humanities area here at the University of Iowa. Whitman Scholar and Professor of English Ed Folsom, Native American History Associate Professor Jackie Rand and Professor of Law Angela Onwachi Willick. All World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And to learn more about film scene, visit icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr, and for UI International Programs, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you this afternoon from film scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of our three-part series called Research to Real Life, and we're discussing the role of academic research in an institution like the University of Iowa and the impact that that research can have on a larger world. When people hear the word research, some think of lab experiments, new medicines, and technological advances. Obviously, scientific research is important, and we'll be talking specifically about sort of the hard sciences in our next segment. But there's deep scholarly research being done in the humanities as well. Whether it's the discovery of new documentation of little-known or long-forgotten pasts, or fresh interpretive analysis of well-known literary works, humanity's research is as critical to our understanding of ourselves as is the human genome." I'm honored to have three exceptional faculty members from the University of Iowa here to shed a little light on their research and reflect on the value it has for both the students they teach and the eternal and perhaps unquantifiable search for new knowledge and increased understanding of the world around us. My guests in this segment are Ed Folsom, professor in the University of Iowa Department of English. Thank you for being here, Ed.
3: Thank you, John. Mm-hmm. Nice to be here.
0: Thank you. Next to him is Jackie Thompson-Rand, and Jackie is an associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of History. Thanks, Jackie. Nice to be here. Mm-hmm. At the far end, we have Angela Onwachi-Willick, professor in the College of Law. Thanks for being here, Angela. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, pleasure. So, Ed, if I could start with you. Um, your prominence in the field of Whitman studies is really... Uh, unchallenged. You've directed important international conferences and seminars. You've taught courses on Whitman all over the world. You co-taught the University of Iowa's first MOOC with IWP director Christopher Merrill on Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. And you've helped lead the development of the digital humanities while co-directing the Walt Whitman Archive. And the starting point for all of this, of course, was teaching. And I'm sure it's still the core of much of what you do. But you've been doing research for this whole period that you've been here as well, uh, writing books and articles and sharing things with others. Um, how has the academic research you've been able to do while you teach amplified what you bring to your students?
3: Well, um, yeah, you're right in the the sense that I find it very difficult to separate my research and my teaching. Um, everything that I do in my research, I find, goes very quickly and directly into the classroom. And so I guess the quickest answer to the question would be to say that I never have looked at the same poem by Whitman or anyone else the same way, teaching it two different times. Mm -hmm. I think each time I teach it, uh, there's an added depth to what we can discover in that poem because of discoveries that I've made working with Whitman's manuscripts, working with Whitman scholars around the world, working with translations of Whitman that have allowed me to see aspects of Whitman's poetic language that I had been blind to in years past. So I think one way to think about how research enhances teaching is that an active researcher uh, is much less likely to ever have the teaching go stale. Mm -hmm. Teaching remains fresh and alive because you are continually rethinking um the material that you're uh dealing with and engaging students with uh, mm-hmm. course after course.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I thought we might talk about in these few minutes was the, is the uh, Whitman Web, which is uh, an interesting presence online, and uh, one might see this in Facebook as well. I know I get postings about it. It's a very interesting um, concept, and of course you're teaching with um, Christopher Merrill, and I'll ask you to explain it, because I call it a course, but in a way it's just open uh, without any course restrictions to anybody in the world.
3: That's right. Um Uh, The Whitman Web, uh, we use use Whitman Web as one word, so if you're looking for it on Google, just type in Whitman Web, one word, and uh, you'll be taken straight to the the website where you can find um, all of uh, my commentary on uh, Whitman's long poem, Song of Myself, all 52 sections, and Chris Merrill's afterwards on all 52 of those sections, along with recordings of each section by Eric Forsyth um, uh, in our theater department here. Eric's got one of the great voices in, uh, um, uh, on, on campus, and uh, uh, he has been a spokesperson for major corporations on ads and so on, and he's a great reader of Whitman's poetry. so. If if nothing else just to hear the poetry read in way in a way that you seldom will experience it It's worth going to that website and then uh, Chris Merrill and I have uh, uh, started a new uh, Whitman uh, Endeavor on the Whitman web and that's Whitman in the Civil War And this time we're looking at Whitman's Civil War poetry, we're looking at his prose, at the Civil War letters that he wrote, and we're looking at Civil War history as the context for understanding Whitman's writing output during those uh, traumatic years in American history. And so this time we're going through 36 weeks dealing with a different text each week, a Whitman Civil War text, And again, you can hear Eric Forsythe read the material. Uh, You can read my introduction to the material and Chris's afterward to the material. And then at the end of this, uh, sometime next uh, fall, we will um, uh, move into our second MOOC. And this one will be a massive online open course uh, on Whitman and the Civil War. We'll use the materials that we've generated on the web, the Whitman web, But anyone is free to go to the Whitman web. It's completely open and accessible. uh, And you can uh, simply read the material without taking the course. But uh, once we offer the course, uh, it will be a sort of hybrid course this time, uh, part writing and part literary study. So people interested in writing war poetry, people interested in war uh, uh, reporting, Uh, war journalism, uh, war correspondence, Uh, there will be TAs and exercises to help people uh, learn from Whitman possibilities for writing about uh, the horrific experience of war
0: i 've had a chance to read a few of the the postings each week, and uh, the, this most recent one that I saw was uh, um, it, it was a sort of a letter that had been written to a woman who, for both herself and her husband, had made a contribution of thirty dollars to Whitman in response to their understanding that he would buy small, I think they call them trifles in the letter, to give to the wounded and, in some cases, the dying, some small gift that could be extended from Whitman's hand to these uh, soldiers. And uh, it's a very moving and touching letter.
3: Yes, Whitman's Civil War letters, I think, are some of the most uh, powerful uh, writing that uh, he did. And... um, Uh, It's interesting, the letter you mentioned, a a letter to Mrs. Curtis, uh, a woman who had given uh, $30 and uh, uh, Whitman's brother, Jeff, uh, always encouraged Whitman to um, uh, write quickly and powerfully to the people who had donated to him because Jeff Whitman's brother told him this is how you will generate more contributions. Right? Mm-hmm. So it was really the you can see in Whitman's letters the beginning of what has become the solicitation for charities that we're all so used to seeing as mm-hmm. on television, uh, uh, in the mail, uh, the letters that uh, will explain to you just exactly what your dollars can do Mm -hmm. in the most effective way possible. Mm -hmm. And Whitman's letters, uh, if we think of them as early fundraising letters, uh, he pours himself into these letters, allowing his, his potential donators to know that even small gifts can make an extraordinary difference in the final days of the dying soldiers' lives. Uh, Whitman, as many of you know, uh, spent his, uh, the last two years of the Civil War in Washington, D.C., just moving from hospital to hospital after he'd spent his day as a clerk uh, for the U.S. government. He would go in the evenings and sometimes spend the whole night in the hospitals with wounded and uh, sick soldiers. And he came in always carrying a little bag uh, over his shoulder. Uh, Some of the soldiers called him Santa Claus when he came in because he (laughs) had the long white beard and the Mm -hmm. little bag of goodies. And he would come in and just have candy or a dollar bill or writing utensils and paper and pencil for the soldiers or sometimes a a little bottle of bourbon. and uh these these things uh uh brought soldiers to tears uh just to have someone who cared and uh held them and uh and and showed some some love in the midst of uh, an otherwise uh horrifying uh setting that they found themselves in um So yeah, the Whitman's letters, we're going to have one letter coming up soon, a letter that he wrote to his mother, one of many letters he wrote to his mother, which of course had no fundraising to them, but in which he poured out his darkest feelings about what he was going through as he would hold young 18, 19-year-old boys who were who were dying of their wounds and dying of the infections, mostly from the wounds, uh, in these Civil War hospitals. And it is incredibly powerful writing. So I invite everybody mm-hmm. to, to come read the letters and then think along with Chris Merrill and me about mm-hmm. what might be involved in the, in the construction of those letters, the creation of those mm-hmm. letters.
0: Mm-hmm. And it feels very um, contemporary. You think it's 150 years, 150-some 150 years old. And uh, it feels as though it could have been written last week by someone who went into Walter Reed or, or a, an outpost somewhere where they're looking after yep. broken soldiers. Very true. So, yeah. Thank you, Ed. Uh, I'd like to move down to you, Jackie, for a second. Um, As you may recall, Jackie Rand uh, teaches in the History Department here at the University of Iowa. She's also a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and the co-coordinator of the American Indian and Native Studies Program. She's faculty advisor to History Corps here at the University of Iowa, which is a graduate student-led digital public humanities project. And if we have time, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But, um, you know, like Ed, you're well-known beyond this campus. Uh, you teach new students every year but you also do your own research and um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you got going on your most recent project, something related to violence against Native women.
4: Right, Um, well thank you very much, Mm -hmm. it's nice to be here Uh, uh, well actually um, I uh, came to this project uh, from for a number of different reasons. I'm very interested in federal Indian law and policy. Um, I fell in with this group of young scholars. Uh, they were inviting me to come and listen to their papers on violence against Native women. This was some time ago. Um, and I went and listened, and then I sort of went away. And uh, they were mainly law people and theorists. And um, So I thought what they were doing was a cool thing. Um, Their work inspired Amnesty International to do a report on violence against Native women in the United States in 2007. Um, But uh, their work kind of bugged me in the sense that uh, a lot of it was very statistical, and I looked um, uh, into some of these DOJ, Department of Justice Statistics, and Um, They were sort of all recycling statistics from some years ago when I just didn't really trust them because it's very hard to do statistical work with American Indian communities. So I just got it in my head that um, they needed a historian in the mix. (laughs) Um, And uh, so time went by and so I plotted out this um, research project in Mississippi Um, and I went down to Mississippi for several summers. There live um, the Mississippi band of Choctaw Indians in Neshoba County, uh, outside of Philadelphia, the county seat. Um, These are the descendants of the people who remained behind um, after Indian removal when the rest of the Choctaws um, were taken to Indian territory. Um, They remained behind in Mississippi. They fell back into the marginal wetlands uh, and lived there until they were forced out by the swamp acts and profit-seeking people uh, forced out of the marginal lands into sharecropping, um, white supremacy, uh, racial hierarchy, Jim Crow, and entered the 20th century unbelievably impoverished um, and oppressed. Uh, And so much of the 20th century was about them just surviving uh, until mid-century. And then um, this group of people that I call um, a cadre of visionary leaders um, uh, really brought their people out of a very dark place um, during the time of LBJ's War on Poverty and then the turn into uh, self-determination, which, of course, was um, one of the pieces of legislator. under our personal hero, Richard Nixon. <laughs> of course, we get Richard Nixon as our personal hero. So um, the, uh, uh, so I, I, I was coming into this out of deep admiration for these young scholars, including Sarah Deer, who just, um, she's a law professor, and she won a MacArthur for her work last year. Um, the Obama administration has been very um, good to us in this issue in many ways. Uh, It's never enough, but he's done some stuff. Um, But then as I was well into this project, uh, I realized that I had also come to it from very deeply personal reasons. Um, And I wouldn't normally talk about this except that I think it's important for us as scholars to be able to own the fact that we're not these objective um, uh, people uh, who are just all about, you know, the increase and diffusion of knowledge among men. Uh, if you're the Smithsonian, um, <laughs> and and so I realized. I mean, it was a very slow reckoning, all my reluctance and everything around this. But I, my family is uh, our family history is deeply seated in many kinds of violence as um, Choctaw people. I've had relatives who died under mysterious circumstances in Oklahoma County jails. My mother and her um, siblings were taken from their parents um, and when they were very little and put into the um, federal Indian boarding school system and didn't leave until they um, were teenagers when they graduated. Um, and there, um, experienced many forms of violence, physical violence, sexual violence, um, emotional violence. Uh, Their human rights were violated routinely. They were denied the right to speak Choctaw. In that generation, we lost, in our family, the Choctaw language. Um, They came from a family of speakers and lost it in those boarding schools. And so my generation of... uh, Choctaws and American Indians. Um, we were raised by these children, these institutionalized children, who did not know love and who weren't being um, reared uh, in an environment where their first identity was respected and, um, and uh, uh, nurtured, I guess is mm-hmm. to say. So, uh, as I was doing this work in Mississippi, I came across, I was looking for a story. Um, these stories are so hard to find. Um, and, uh, you know, we have these statistics, and I wanted to disaggregate them. Um, they're very helpful um, in many respects, but they're not always helpful in every respect. And so I was looking for a story, and I was talking to the first, to the this guy who owned the Neshoba Democrat during the civil rights movement. He was the editor and owner, and he was still alive. And I was talking to him and drinking iced tea, and he said, out of the blue, there was this case. Bernice. Bernice, who's that girl, Bernice? And so I started scribbling away, you know. and uh, And the rest of that summer was about finding Bernice. And it was a very mysterious experience I mean, involved going to county clerks and uh, court clerks, and uh, here, there being sent here, there, and ultimately, this person who boxes up stuff to send to the state archives. She was the person who found Bernice for me, and um, and said, so my book is about Bernice, and uh, and also about tribal governance and this turn to self-determination. Through, and, uh, through the civil rights movement and the war on poverty. Um, we have to know these stories um, for ourselves because left to our own devices, we make up our own stories about our inferiority, our failure, our um, hopelessness. Uh, I think it is the greatest irony of my life that becoming an historian. with history and anthropology being implicated in colonialism like up to here, um, that becoming a historian saved me in many ways. Um, It helped me to see my family as historical actors. It helped me to see their context. It helped me to see my own context. Um, And, uh, you know, we have to do this. Uh, American Indians uh, have Uh, suffer the highest rates uh, of any population in the United States for incarceration, for referral to juvenile court, for suicide, for police murder, and for rape. Our population has never recovered from the great American experiment. And uh, we can't recover if women are being raped and destroyed. We can't recover if women are being incarcerated for, at, for, for prostitution at astronomical rates. We can't recover when, our, when Native women are being um, trafficked out of um, the upper Midwest where the pipelines are and the boom towns. There's all kinds of human trafficking of. Native women across the Great Lakes right now. Um, And uh, so I think the statistics are helpful, but they're so flawed. And I think the story, uh, the history, helps us understand not just the violence. It's not just a a story of violence, but it's also a story about tribal government and, and I, I I think we have to know that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, thank you, Jackie. It's kind of heavy. I, <laughs> you know, no, very. I'm grateful that you shared the, the more intimate side of that story, too, and your own personal connection with it. And I'm sure that's true with many of us. What, what we decide to go into is our professional... Career uh, comes from something deeply uh, internal like this, but uh, Angela, let me go down to you. You are a professor here in the College of Law, and uh, you know, gosh, what a tremendous career for such a young woman! I mean, you uh, you received the Derek A. Bell Award from the Association of American Law Schools for outstanding contributions to legal education, the legal system, or social justice. You were selected as a finalist for the Iowa Supreme Court. You received the Marian Hewitt Award, a University of Iowa award given to tenured faculty members in recognition of outstanding teaching and assistance to students, exceptional research and writing, and service to the community. It's really terrific. And so you also have teaching as a primary responsibility, but your work goes beyond that. You're concerned with social justice issues. And um, tell us a little bit about what you're, you're most involved in as you uh, go sure. through your research.
5: So most of my work uh, deals with anti-discrimination law and it deals with critical race theory. And so often I'm I'm looking at issues of race and gender and how they intersect with the law, both how the law works to construct race and to construct gender, and to construct all other identity categories, but also how, um, how those categories help to shape the law. And in particular now, I'm working on a project that's looking at, um, uh, historically looking back at the murder of Emmett Till in 1955 mm-hmm. in Mississippi and using it as a lens for also understanding the uh, killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012 and the trial in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that I'm exploring is, I'm, what, I, what, I, what I wanted to do is to take what we would all agree Is a quite extraordinary case a case of of uh, uncontested hate um, the worst form of violence against a young child in 1955 in Mississippi and what I'm trying to do is examine the Trayvon Martin trial and to see how Um, discrimination, and racism has morphed, that we have a a different operation here, a different operation here, but there's some of the same forces that were working in that killing, that were working in that trial, that worked to lead to the acquittal of George Zimmerman in that case, in the same way that the two men who were tried for Emmett Till's murder, J.W. Milam, um, and Roy Bryant were uh, acquitted in that case as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, can, can you expand just a little bit more on that? So I think if I remember correctly, Emmett Till was, what, 13, something like Emmett this? Emmett Till
5: was 14 years 14. old. Mm-hmm. He came from Chicago. Um, he came from Chicago his, uh, to visit his uh, uncle, who was living in Mississippi. And uh, he was out with his cousins, One night at a store, he went in to buy bubble gum. Uh, It's it's disputed about what happened in the store, and the claim was that he whistled and came on to uh, a white woman, uh, Carolyn Bryant, who was working in the store. Um, And this story eventually gets back to her husband and her husband's cousin, J.W. Milam, and they come and they kidnap Emmett Till in the middle of the night from his uh, uncle's home. Um, and, you know, he's, he's from Chicago. He doesn't understand the customs of the South. And so they're angry with him because, at the same time, they're, they're getting him up, they're yelling at him. He's saying, yeah, he's saying, no. He's not saying, yes, sir, he's not saying, no, sir, in the way that blacks uh, in Mississippi have learned, who've grown him up in Mississippi have learned uh, to, mm. to communicate with whites in the state. And they take him out, and they brutally beat him. They brutally beat him, and they eventually shoot him. And his mother, he's a brave, brave woman, decides that she's going to um, show the world what hate looks like. And she decides to allow uh, the black press, black newspapers, black magazines to publish his face. And if you ever, you can Google it and you can look at it. It's just horrific, horrific image. And this brings nationwide attention to the case. Um... Uh, and uh, in, in many ways, starts a movement, right? So Rosa Parks is known as saying, well, you know, I, you know, I kept thinking about Emmett Till, and I wouldn't get up from my seat, right? So mm-hmm. the Montgomery bus boycott even is influenced by the murder of Emmett Till and by the bravery of his mother. Um, and there are a number of things that are going on, but one of the things that I argue is happening in the Emmett Till case is that part of what's happening there, the reaction the response to it, is very much linked to sort of this desire to hold on to the benefits of whiteness, right? To what we, what we call whiteness as property, the privileges of whiteness, both material and psychic. And some of it is, and I'm focusing on the psychic harm as well. So part of what's going on, Emmett Till is killed a year after Brown versus Board of Education. He's killed a few months after the second Brown decision comes on, and whites in Mississippi and in the South in general, they're worried, they're scared, they're resisting, they don't know what this will mean for them, and in particular, um, poor whites and working-class whites are really worried about it. What will it mean, because in a Southern system of racial hierarchy, what it means to be poor, poor white person is that you're not at the bottom of the hierarchy as long as all blacks are there. And J.W. Milam and Roy Bryan are exactly in this particular position. Um, And so they're they're working in some ways to protect it. And you also have the community working to protect that as well because initially when he's murdered, the governor comes out, denounces the murder. The community is trying to distance themselves from J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant. Um, They they can't find an attorney initially. And then as there's more sort of press from the North and, and there's more criticism from the North about it, People kind of band together around these two men. Um, they they couldn't find an attorney before. and Now they're represented by all five attorneys. There's a fundraising campaign to raise money for them. And then, of course, the 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 you know the ultimate help was to acquit them of a murder that everyone knew they had done. They admitted to to kidnapping Emmett Till. Um, they just didn't admit to killing him. They said they let him go that night. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got Trayvon Martin, who is uh, of a very different time. It was a post-civil rights era. Um, we've got formal laws in the book that ban discrimination. Um, um, and, and most people in our society today would say that they're not racist, and they would condemn racism. Uh, and, but you've got uh, Trayvon Martin, who comes to Sanford, Florida, which has its own unique racial history, it too is also reeling from some previous killings of unarmed African American teenagers at that time um, it's also the town that's known for for chasing uh, um, uh, Jackie Robinson out of town twice oh. not just once oh, um, it's got it's, it's founded basically by someone who wanted to send African Americans back to Africa and Trayvon Martin is coming from Miami Gardens Florida, where he is a black city council there 's a black mayor um, there's just in general um, it, you know there's there's a There are African-Americans who are in power, and he comes to Sanford, Florida. He's staying in the neighborhood with his father's girlfriend, um, who is a person who lives in, uh, in the retreat at Twin Lakes, the neighborhood that she and George Zimmerman live in. And But he doesn't also understand that not only does Sanford have its own unique racial history, one that's quite distinct from Miami, Florida, but it's also a neighborhood that is desperately fighting to maintain, you know, its perception as sort of a white space, right? So one of the things that I talk about in this paper is how we've moved from protecting whiteness as property to protecting white spaces. And this is what's happening, right? So it's a community that's concerned because the prices, the the value of the homes have gone down from being worth more than $250,000 to being worth about $100,000. You've got more minorities moving in. You've got more empty houses. You've got some foreclosures going in. In the beginning, George Zimmerman's making calls. The minute he moves into the neighborhood, he's making calls, but he's not making calls about race. He's not making calls about black men. He's making calls about someone's dog barking. And the minute that the neighborhood begins to turn, all of his calls—a pattern in all of his calls—is that they're all about black men, right? Even a seven to nine-year-old child playing. There's a seven to nine-year-old black child, male child, playing out in the street, right? So, you see the tenor change. People are beginning to think about. Uh, people in race. They're, they're highlighting people in notes based on race. And there's some websites too, right? If you look at, I can't remember the name of the website, but there's a website where people will, will write on there, well, I saw somebody in this neighborhood, in a black man, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so we see this happening all over the United States, not just in Sanford, Florida, in the retreat of Twin Lakes, but this is what this neighborhood is sort of resisting, this change. And George Zimmerman in particular is like Milam and Bryant because he too, he's in a precarious status. He's a renter. He's not an owner in the neighborhood. He's like part Latino in a neighborhood that is concerned about more minorities coming in. And so all these things sort of lead into um, this, uh, lead to this, this um, uh, one night when George Zimmerman sees Trayvon Martin someone who, whom he sees out of place in part because of race um, and decides to follow him. And, and there. They're, and so I think history tells us a lot about what happened there with the killing. I think history tells us a lot about why he's able to walk away in terms that night and we lose some evidence that night. I think history tells us a lot about some of the tropes that were used in the trial. And I think history tells us a lot about the actual outcome. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, history is really very, very important. It's important for lawyers to understand um, legal doctrines, understand statutes, and understand case law, but they also have to understand both historically and presently what are the contexts in which those doctrines are mobilized, what are the contexts in which those doctrines are created and applied, uh, and, uh, and so I find history to be incredibly important mm-hmm. to law.
0: Wow. What what interesting, wonderful work you're all doing, and I, I just wish we had more time to talk because this is all so so interesting and kind of nice interweaving here. We're talking civil war, we're talking about race today, uh, how the history and, and certainly the abuse of the women and the uh, the time spent in the boarding schools and so on, loss of a culture at all, does tie together in a very interesting way. And I thank you all for being here, Ed Folsom and Jackie Rand and Angela Onwachi Willick. Uh, thank you very, very much. Um, and for all of you, thank you for listening to this conversation and, and just um, If you didn't know what it means when you hear that somebody in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences is doing research, think about what these guys have said today. This is not, you don't just teach a class and go home and forget about it. This inspires these lives, and I I just want, I hope that one of the things we can do in this program is um, encourage everybody who listens to it to... uh, you take some pleasure and some enjoyment and some fulfillment and also explore your own curiosity regarding these topics. It's really important and incredible. Um, So please stay with us for the third segment of World Canvas. We'll be talking about something very exciting, something that's um, um, happening here on this campus and to really high levels of uh, virtuosity, and that's uh, the virtual world. So we will uh, go to two really good guests uh, in just a moment here. World Canvas programming can be found on YouTube, iTunes, UITV and the International Program's website which is international.uiowa.edu and uh, so for this segment of World Canvas I'm Joan Kerr, thanks for joining us and see you next time. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from film scene this afternoon in downtown Iowa City and we're happy to have you join us for part three of this series focusing on the relationship between academic research and real life. In this segment we're going to discuss research at the University of Iowa that's conducted in virtual reality environments. What is the virtual world and what can it tell us that real world experiments can't My guests in this segment are Jody Plummer, to the far end, a professor and chair of the University of Iowa Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. Thanks for being here, Jody. Thanks for having Mm -hmm. me. And next to me here is Karim Abdel-Malik, professor in the University of Iowa Departments of Biomedical and Mechanical Engineering and director of the University of Iowa Center for Computer-Aided Design. Thank you, Karim. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is such an exciting area. It feels to many of us, I think, like science fiction, but um, we all hear about the virtual world, virtual this and that, and I wonder if uh, you could tell us, Kareem, how you would describe to us what virtual reality is in terms of an engineer's uh, work.
6: Sure. Um, So virtual reality, in general, they call it VR. Nowadays it's a big buzzword. VR, short. um, is a computer-generated environment that represents real life. So a a room inside a computer uh, could be um, described as a virtual reality as long as you can interact with it. A simple example of this would be a kid playing on a phone. Uh, if you've heard about Minecraft, a typical one, you play and you build things. Uh, so that the kid interacts with that environment. That's virtual reality. On the other he- end of it, the, the very high end, imagine somebody walking to a, a room the size of this room. It's all projected and this person wears 3d glasses. And all of a sudden, you take that person down to uh, the pyramids in Egypt. And you take them down uh, inside, and they start removing stones and looking at the tombs and, and so on. So that's one, one application. That, that, that's the two ends of it, I'd say. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, so tell us a little bit about what the Center for Computer Aided Design uh, does. What are some of the main projects you work on?
6: Uh, sure. So the Center for Computer Aided Design is a unit within the College of Engineering here at the University of Iowa. It has about 150 people, um, 150 researchers. We're divided in seven units. We're focused on the area of modeling and simulation, um, mostly in the virtual reality, but broadly the the simulation. I'll mention three of those units that may be more relevant to to the discussion here. One is um, something called the National Advanced Driving Simulator, NADS. It's a national lab that's been uh, established here at Iowa about 15 years ago or so, a $60 million uh, contract that we won here, and it, it has a car inside a simulator. A person can drive that car and um, experience the car, the, the roads, and so on, all in the virtual world. So you, you, very safe. That's the the idea. Okay. We administer uh, drugs to people to test the drugs or um, you know, cell phone distraction issues, all of that inside a very safe environment. That's one of one mm-hmm. of the labs. Another one that's closer to what I do uh, is called the virtual soldier. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, a, basically a human being that lives inside a computer that is virtual. His name is Santos. His friend is Sophia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And between Santos and Sophia, we ask them to do things. We say, hey Santos, can you uh, go carry this box today? You're a 20 year old uh, male from North America. Try to carry that box Santos goes and tries carries it it's, uh, sorry my my spine biomechanics at the L4 and the spine is higher than I, than I can do that don't ask me to do that so that's program number two that's related to the virtual reality and the third one is a lot to do with avionics uh, we, we actually own uh, flight simulators and and jets here on campus we work a lot with the Air Force and um, Rockwell Collins a big defense industry to simulate um, what the pilot feels, for example, you know, while uh, engaging in a war fight. Wow! So that—that's wow. yeah. in a nutshell.
0: Yeah. Um, and you also do research into driverless or autonomous um, vehicles. I, I think I've heard this.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Under each one of those, mm-hmm. uh, there's a group of people that, uh, mostly faculty and staff, that specialize in certain areas. And one of our areas nowadays is is the autonomous vehicles.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. So how long ago did you start with this, uh, with the Center for Computer Aided Design?
6: I, I've been on campus 21 years, but as director of the Center for 10, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're getting in much more involved in the world of VR. Mm-hmm. It's, it's truly, uh, somebody described it just recently in the New York Times as a revolution coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Im- imagine, just give you some some uh, points, Facebook, Facebook, um, Just bought a virtual reality company for two billion dollars and they believe that that will become a consumer uh, product so how does that affect people is where the center is heading Um, another company I just give you an idea for for the audience to understand what what's coming in the future I went down Florida about two weeks ago I can't say the name of the company Mm -hmm. but it's a company that does amazing stuff in the virtual reality augmented reality I put glasses on they look Regular glasses, they're just tied with a wire uh, down to a pack around my, my waist. And you know, as I'm wearing the glasses, I can see everything, everything is normal. But then they said, can you, can you put your finger up like this? So I, I did, all of a sudden, this bird comes in and lands right on my finger. I, I'm looking <gasps> at it, I can't believe it. And then they said, well, do do like this with your hand. I did, an iPad showed up, and it's <laughs> functional. So I, now you start thinking, well, where, where's all this going? Do you need an iPad, do you need a board and education? Mm -hmm. So where we're headed here at the the university, we have about five projects that are very involved in this type of research. One has to do with um, neurosurgical uh, um, procedures to augment what the surgeon sees in terms of, one of the biggest issues they have is that they have to see through a very tiny, it's a very big microscope, but very tiny, device that that they have to stick with it for about 13 hours sometimes and they can't get up and they, they have to go Different room to check uh, the CT MR data So we we put together a team from a very strong College of Medicine as, as you know here on campus uh, To create a virtual environment that replaces that microscope mm-hmm. and yet provides an immediate feedback from the patient uh, superimposed on it is that patient specific uh, CT and MR data. Mm-hmm. So you, you know now doctors, you, you can go get CT, they reconstruct, reconstruct it in, in 3D, and they're able to look at it. Imagine that if all of this information, including the procedure itself, is available to the surgeon in real time as they're operating. So it's virtual reality, what, mm-hmm. what now is called augmented reality altogether. All mm-hmm. Very exciting project, I, I, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Wow, wow, unbelievable. So when you started some years ago, or when you began as a young engineer, could you have even imagined any of these things at that time, 20-some years ago?
6: The answer is absolutely yes, but no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's just a, it's changing so fast. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to, to keep up uh, yeah. sometimes. And,
0: yeah. yeah. How, how do you think it will affect people in everyday life?
6: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it will significantly. What I hear now, we're involved as a center with, um, uh, mostly with Google, but Facebook as well, you know, Microsoft has has uh, also declared theirs. But all of these devices are being released in 2016, 2017, and so the the word VR revolution is being described as just a huge hit um, that that will influence each and every one of us. A simple example: you'll walk into a store. Nowadays, you, you walk in, you carry the box. Just a simple example: mm-hmm. you carry the box, you look at it. Um, and you say, you know, the diet information and so on. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're wearing these 3D gla- They just look like regular glasses. And you walk in. As you look, that information will be transmitted to you. Whatever you're looking at, will, they'll know. You're looking at that box. I'm going to give you all the information. Yeah.
0: But My, how is that possible? I don't understand how that's possible. It's <laughs> <much> magic, mostly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
6: The technology has evolved so much that now the computer you know, is intelligent enough to provide that information to mm-hmm. um, as 3D representation in, in, on the one, you know, from the graphics side, but mostly from the a, the, what we call the artificial intelligence side as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, another good example that I always use is that you can't really give a jet engine to every mechanic to train on. Jet engines are about $500 sometimes, you know, plus or minus. To, for one mechanic to train on that engine, to disassemble, to maintain, to, it's just a lot of cost, a tremendous amount of time. Imagine if you give a virtual engine to the mechanic to train at home. And so that technology is also coming. What Facebook has decided to do, and, and you'll be seeing this in, in uh, schools all, all across America within the next six months, mm-hmm. is what they call head-mounted displays. So these are not glasses. These are things that you wear like this that you can't see through but inside is all sorts of projections and computations and so on. And as as you look inside, you're able to, you, it tracks your hands, it tracks where your head is, it knows where you are in space. As you're doing things, it's projecting certain things in, in your mm. environment, so you touch the jet engine, you disassemble, it, it, you know, it, it provides you with all of that. So I think the training, mm. medicine, manufacturing, education, you name it, it it's coming in a, in a very strong way.
0: Wow. So. Unbelievable. This is very, very cool. Thank you. Um, uh, Jody. let's go to you for a little while and and hear a little bit about the HANK and Virtual Environment, what the HANK Lab is.
7: So I co-direct the HANK Virtual Environments Lab with Joe Carney, my colleague in computer science. And this is an interdisciplinary lab because it brings together behavioral science and computer science. And the overarching goal of our lab is to use virtual environments as a laboratory for studying human behavior. And this is very useful for the kinds of things that we look at. So we're interested, for example, in how children and adults cross roads. And this is not something that you can actually study very easily in the real world because you can't put kids at the side of a road and ask them to cross (laughs) and see how well they do. Mm
2: -hmm. So
7: the virtual (laughs) environment situation allows us to create an environment that's very realistic and it's also interactive so that, as Kareem was describing, as you move, you appear to be moving through this environment. And that allows us to look at how children are crossing roads. So we have a bicycling simulator that allows us to look at how children and adults bicycle across roads with traffic. And we also have a pedestrian simulator that allows us to look at how children and adults cross roads on foot.
0: Wow. And, and I know that you've recently, there have been a few articles written about some of the research you've done with um, children who seem to have ADHD or have mm-hmm. different kinds of perception um, issues that would fall a little bit out of what you might think of as normal range. Um, what Where is that work going?
7: Well, so one of the things that Dan Reed talked about earlier was basic research and applied research. And our lab really strives to bridge the divide between basic and applied research. And so on the basic research side, we're interested in things like how do kids use visual information to guide their movement? And so crossing roads is a great example of this because you have to watch the traffic, use the visual information about the motion of the cars and the distance of the cars to decide whether a gap is big enough for crossing, and then you need to actually act on that decision by moving through the gap. And so on a very um, perceptual motor level, the two things that are important in this task are making decisions about gaps that afford crossing. So a gap has to be big enough so that you can actually make it across the road before the tail car crosses your um, path. But the other part of it is is that you have to be able to time your movement into that gap. So one of the interesting things about crossing roads with continuous traffic is that it's a dynamic situation, which means that a gap isn't going to be good if you wait too long before you cross. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we find with children is that there are big developmental changes in how well children time their movement. So... If you're an adult in our task, you'll cut in nice and close behind the lead vehicle in the gap. So you might even start to move before that lead vehicle is completely crossed your path, your you know, sight line. But if you're a six or an eight year old, you delay before crossing into that gap. And the problem with delaying is that it leaves you with less room with the tail end of the gap, with mm-hmm. the, the tail car. Mm-hmm. And so to get back to your question about the ADHD kids, we were interested in how are they making decisions about crossing traffic? How are they timing their movement? And we found with these kids, this was with the bicycling simulator, that there weren't huge differences between the children with ADHD and without ADHD in terms of their gap decisions, but there were differences in how they timed their movements so that the kids with ADHD were a little bit slower to move into that gap than the kids without ADHD. So, this kind of research is telling us a lot about both basic perceptual motor issues as well as how these might change over development and also how they might differ in different populations of kids.
0: And presumably there there would be once you and others feel that their research is kind of clear, has told you something important, then there can be tools developed to help um, anyone who needs a little extra assistance to, to make these judgments. Um, I mean, does this have a, potentially have an application for, for some kind of, uh, I don't know, beeper on a bike or, or something that could help?
7: It can, I think. Um, On just sort of a basic level, I think it's important for parents, pediatricians to know about some of these Mm -hmm. sorts of developmental changes so that they can be aware of differences between how a kid might cross a road versus how an adult might cross Mm -hmm. a road. But a little bit more uh, specific to your question, we've also been working on another kind of study, and this is not with kids, but with adults looking at this problem of people as pedestrians texting while they're crossing roads. Mm. You've probably seen a lot of articles (laughs) in the popular press about the problems with texting and walking, how people walk into things, (laughs) they walk more slowly, there are issues with getting hit on roadways and so on. So we've been working on developing an app that can be delivered to the cell phone that will tell the texting pedestrian whether it's safe to cross or not. Oh. And so this, this relies on what we call um, vehicle-to-pedestrian technology. So you may have heard about the V2V, which is vehicle-to-vehicle, you know, those ads on TV, mm-hmm. like, your car knows that someone has stopped ahead of that semi before mm-hmm. you even do because your cars are communicating with each other. So we can also communicate with people's cell phones to tell them where the cars are And so we did a study looking at texting pedestrians with alerts that told them when a good gap was coming, texting uh, pedestrians without alerts, and then just people who were not texting. And it was very interesting. We found that the alerts did help the texting pedestrians cross more safely, but on the other hand, they came to rely on it Mm -hmm. very quickly and very heavily so, in fact, they spent a lot less time looking at the traffic than even texting pedestrians without those alerts. So that's interesting. It suggests that with technology, we tend to offload our cognitive, you know, capacities. And so it, it raises interesting questions about how this might work in real life. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so what are some of the, oh, I, I don't know, moral uh, dilemmas you have to deal with when you're, when you're working on something and, and you maybe you create some tool like this that might be really helpful to people but at the same time um, it could in fact diminish the sorts of things we all need in, without the technology that you need um, to, to operate at 100% different kinds of perceptive skills uh, do you encounter anything like that Kareem in the work you guys do? I,
6: I think not to the extent does they they look at it much more in depth Um, we're more on the engineering side trying to you know do the Mm R&D to come up with technology that uh, of course it's incredibly helpful to 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 work with uh, the other side to understand what the impact is and Mm -hmm. you know the ethics of it the moral aspects Mm -hmm. and so on but we we have not had to deal Mm -hmm. with with these issues
0: Mm Hmm. but But you and your colleagues working in your lab would have to think about uh, you know psychological and brain sciences, right mm-hmm. so you are thinking about how this affects the whole human being or the family or
7: well it's a very interesting issue as we gain technology. what does that do to our cognitive abilities? I mean people certainly talk about that with using GPS that if you rely on GPS a lot, you become less good at spatial navigation, which mm-hmm. is a core human ability. On the other hand, it may allow you to do other things if you are able to let technology take some of that burden yeah, from you. Yeah. So it's, I, it, it's a little hard yeah. to know which way mm-hmm. that goes. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we've been talking a lot about research, but a little bit also about funding. Uh, for scientific research, like what you folks are doing, where does your funding come from?
6: Ours, so uh, I'll describe it as... Um... My own program, which is mm-hmm. the virtual soldier, has been heavily dependent on military funding, mm-hmm. so we we um, have been very lucky in a, in a way um, many thanks to the people that are working within the program they 've done amazing work that is considered by the military to be mm-hmm. good and being used, and therefore the funding has continued for the past eleven or twelve years or so mm-hmm. um, but you know as you heard from vP Reed. Um, just before it's a struggle every year is a struggle to go out and get more funding so in in general for our center mm-hmm. uh, with all the researchers I, i'd say about sixty percent has been government and forty percent so government includes military mm-hmm. and then about forty percent is uh, industry mm-hmm. and so it, it's quite different funding the the government you know a typical national Science Foundation or national Institute of health is more on the basic research. And at the end of the day, you don't really have to produce something. Mm-hmm. You, you can do a lot of research, and it's one of those long mm-hmm. periods, 10, 15, 20 years, you know, if you do something substantial. Mm-hmm. On the development side, which is industry, they typically give you uh, sort of funds, and they say uh, delivery is one, two, three. Yeah. A- and so those two contracts are substantially different, mm-hmm. I'd mm-hmm. say. Each have mm-hmm. their own... Pros and cons; each have their own issues. Mm.
0: And, yeah. yeah. And did you have any uh, particular particular uh, downturn in the funding when we went through the crash a few years ago, uh, 2008, 2009?
6: Y- yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it it continues to be an up and a down, and mm-hmm. up and down. It's never been um, mm-hmm. uh, consistent. Mm-hmm. That you know, a certain number comes in. Every year, you, you have to go out and, and struggle to, to bring more. The yeah. better the work we do, the better, mm-hmm. of course, we, we get. But, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy process.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think you said you have about 150 researchers. Are those partly students and partly full-time uh, research we staff? We have about 40
6: or? faculty, about 40 um, staff. Mm-hmm. And those staff, staff means, um, you know, either postdoc, a science who's dedicated to research, Uh, administrators, and so on, Mm -hmm. and then the rest are all uh, graduate undergraduate
0: Mm -hmm. students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, Jody, with the research you all do, where does your funding generally come from?
7: Well, we take money from anyone. So (laughs) um, we've taken money from NIH, the National Mm -hmm. Institute of Child Health and Human Development, from NSF, Mm -hmm. um, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention through the UI Injury Prevention Research Center here. Uh, Also, NADS helped uh, obtain a University Transportation Center grant, and so we've received funding through them as well. So the texting and cell phone project was funded through them. But I think it's something people don't always realize outside of a university, just how tough it is to get that research dollars. So it seems so easy when you see these big numbers, you know, for research grants and so on. But the competition is unbelievable, unbelievably tight. I mean, for NICHD right now, grants have to be um, at basically the 92nd percentile. Mm-hmm. So it means that you know, not even one in ten grants are getting funded. It's yeah. very, very tough. And people work incredibly hard to bring those grant dollars into the university. And they really, as um, Dan Reed was saying early, they, earlier, they employ so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think just in our department, Psychological and Brain Sciences, it you know, about $2 million a year goes into the community to support people who are employed in mm-hmm. research labs, and I'm sure it's way, way more for that mm-hmm. than that in, in Kareem's operation.
0: And is it true that uh, when your labs really exist on the basis of outside funding, if you did not get a certain number of grants that you really need to function, that means that those, those people working there don't have the same job stability? I think very often people think, oh, universities, you know, you work there, and everybody works there, and there's, you know... Everybody's tenured and all of this, which is a misunderstanding in the first place. But in labs, if there were a severe downturn in your funding from the outside, people would lose jobs and the research would have to slow down or yeah, it's absolutely stop. Absolutely
6: true, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. one of the hardest things that you have to um, deal with as, yeah, as yeah. A, a researcher. You hire fifteen, you know, more researchers th- this year, but then a downturn next year, and you have to figure out something quick. Mm-hmm. And, all of a sudden, it, it, you know, the the notion of not having profit at a university it, it, it hurts. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of them. Companies they go th- through downturns, they have some reserve, they can um, build up and and you know make everything mm-hmm. equal. Mm-hmm. We, we we can't do that. It's mm-hmm. one of the the difficulties.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are there things you're working on now that are patented items for the university?
6: We have. Um, so the process for um, issuing you know, patents or submitting a, an invention is, mm-hmm. is very sophisticated, but depending on the contract that we work. So if it's a company and they have some issues with uh, intellectual property IP and they say, you know, you, we work with you, but we want back all the IP, mm-hmm. it's a different type of a contract mm-hmm. that we can't really submit for a patent.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: Over the years, the, the, the center has done very well in... Um, obtaining uh, patents and, and issued as well. Mm-hmm. But also in economic development, we, we're one of the only centers, I, I think, on campus that have produced nine companies mm-hmm. in the past seven years. Mm. Not, not all are um, you know, big, uh, successful companies. They're mm-hmm. on and off. But in general, the technology has been transferred, and the process of doing this is mm-hmm. very well established. Mm-hmm. The university has really done a great job in the past few years of, of um, uh, building the the base, what, we call, what I call the e- ecosystem mm-hmm. around uh, economic development, launching company license technology, bringing investors in, and so on.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What do the two of you think about uh, sort of the future of your, of your labs? Your, what, what comes next? You know? How far down the road are you looking? Just to the next budget year, or you, you have big dreams for things that you, you want to do, but you know it's going to be a few years to get them done?
7: Well, one of the things we're trying to obtain funding for right now that we're very excited about is that we have these two large screen simulators now. So if you can picture this, you have these 14 feet, 2 inches or so long side screens. They're 8 feet high, and then you have a 10-foot wide by 8-foot high front screen. You have a floor projector um, that projects the floor surface, and so we have... Uh, And then you can have either a bike in there or you can actually physically walk across roads in there. So one of the things that we really want to do is we want to be able to connect our two simulators via computer. And what that will allow us to do is to have two people, they're each in their own simulator, say they're each riding a bike in their own simulator, but they're able to share the same virtual world together. So they would have motion tracking sensors on them so that an avatar would show up in the other person's simulator that would be doing exactly what that person was doing, and then vice versa, Mm -hmm. that person in the simulator shows up Mm -hmm. as an avatar Mm -hmm. riding a bike in the other simulator. And so we're really excited about this idea, both because it's challenging on the computer science side, but also because it's going to allow us to look at things like, how does risk-taking when to emerge in real time when two friends are riding together and crossing a bunch of intersections this is not anything you could possibly do in the real world but we're really excited about the possibility of being able to do this in a virtual world so hopefully our grant funding will come through and Mm -hmm. we'll be able to start working on that
0: very cool very cool and is there anything you can tell us that you're dreaming about working on
6: a lot Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, um, we're getting involved much more in the world of robotics oh, and yeah. uh, virtual reality I mentioned virtual reality robotics as well um, we are about uh, you know hopefully shortly here within weeks um, we got the word the okay that we got funded for a significant contract multi-year from the US Marines mm. which is to use the virtual soldier so now he's going to be a marine We've been asked to change his tattoos because his <laughs> tattoos, are, we'll do that. So once he serves the, Marine, the uh, Marines, um, he would be able to, we will do research, we will work with the uh, medical school, certain professors uh, in the College of Medicine to um, build a lot of mathematical models that would predict injury for the virtual soldier. And so the U.S. Marines, as they go through basic training and on the field, they sustain quite a bit of uh, injuries that they know uh, they can uh, reduce. They know they can reduce that, but they have to understand them much more. And they feel that a, a good virtual marine would help them in doing this. And so we, we won the contract over many other universities. I'm very mm. proud about that. Mm,
0: congratulations. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Wow. Very, very exciting. So thank you both for being here this afternoon. Karim Malik. Uh, and from engineering, and Jody Plummer, from psychological and brain sciences, and uh, um, all of you. Thank you for coming this afternoon, and everyone watching this program or listening to it. Uh, it's been an exciting show, and I, I'm happy you could share it with us. Please join us here at Film Scene for our next program. Uh, it will be on February 9th at five o'clock, and the topic is kind of linked to tonight. It's Encountering New Technology, and we'll have some good discussion that night, I think, February 9th at 5 o'clock. I hope you can make plans to join us. Um, you can find archived World Campus programs on our website, which is international.uiowa.edu. But for tonight, that's all. I'm Joan Kerr, and join, you, join us next time. Good night.